Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined by my co-host and producer, Jason Daphnis. Hey, Jason. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent, and uh, we have a couple of really excellent albums, very interesting albums to discuss today, and a very excellent and interesting guest, Todd Hansen. Uh, he was a longtime writer, uh, you know, I, th- I would say in the golden age of the, the Onion, and uh, you also might know him as the voice of Dan Halen in Adult Swim's Squidbillies. Um yeah, and also there's. I was listening today. There's a really great episode of WTF with Mark Marin. You know, a little <laughs> bit bigger podcast than this um, with <laughs> with Todd. That I, it was it was actually a really good listen. I, I uh, it's from a few years ago, but I should Google it and check it out. That, that's Todd. A, that's a heavy listen. So if you made it yes. all the way through to the end, uh, I apologize. No, no, it was it was it was it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, so Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for ha- uh, coming by. Oh well, thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you guys, and uh, I I like the album I was assigned, and uh, this is a cool idea to share albums like this. It's always it's always cool to share albums with friends, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that uh, you're sharing them kind of blind and don't know what the other person is going to share, and don't even know if you've ever even heard of the album or the artist. Like in this case, I'd never heard of Nina Nastasia, and uh, it was uh, a real eye opener. So uh, it's, it's yeah. a cool idea, way to get people to listen to things they wouldn't otherwise know about. Yeah, it's kind of weird when you start something. You don't really you make choices, and you don't really know what the effect of those will be. And, the, and for some reason, the blind picks has, has just ended up with these really interesting, like sometimes juxtapositions, sometimes albums that go together pretty well. It's just it's kind of odd. Um, so I want to uh, want to get into your pick, um, and and it's kind of interesting because I actually was when I was listening to your interview. Uh, with Mark Marin today, um, there's a, a couple things kind of struck me is that, and it kind of dovetailed into this pick is that in some ways I always sort of thought, and you talked about it, you know, seeing the sort of onion as sort of a subversive kind of underground paper, you know, kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah that's pu- the, putting that a was, mirror to America in, in a certain, that, that was my view of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was sort of a absurdist mirror to sort of, I mean, I always kind of saw it as sort of this way of, like you guys were almost like documenting the decline of America, <laughs> you know, in, in sort of a absurdist comedy way. But I mean, uh, in retrospect, I think that you know the apparently you were right about that. We well, I mean, I felt like the in, world became the onion. You know what I mean? After, yeah. Oh my God, uh, the world exceeded the onion. Uh, the things that you know, the idea of like reality TV show pres, you know, reality TV host elected president. That sounds like something that the onion might not have done because it was too weird. And that happened in real life. And then everything got even more insane. And, um, and now we're at a point where people can't even agree on reality anymore. And we're in what they call the post truth era. And unlike a lot of neologisms, I don't think that that is an exaggeration. Or, or a hyperbole, it, it really becomes difficult to use the satirical tools of hyperbole and exaggeration and, and sarcasm when um, reality has, has sort of gone way beyond any hyperbole you could have thought of. Yeah, I mean, you see a lot. I think you see Saturday Night Live really struggle with that. You know, they just can't. The stuff they're yeah. parodying was funnier in real life. Yeah, it's... it's uh, 
it's it's actually quite horrifying to be honest uh, wow. it's uh, a, a terribly scary time every time i see tucker carlson now i think oh my god that guy's gonna run for president oh and, yep and it's just a literal living nightmare to think of that happening but we've yep. already been doing that for five years um i remember when trump originally started running i i remember saying to my friends there's no way he gets the nomination for republican uh, candidate and if he does i'm going to have to completely reevaluate everything i think about this country and the closer it got to the you know through the primaries i kept thinking he's gonna get it and i would tell people that and they'd say oh no it can't happen it can't happen but that reminded me of a novel by sinclair lewis he was a pulitzer prize winning american satirist and novelist in the early part of the 20th century and he wrote a novel called It Can't Happen Here about a fascist dictator taking over the United States in, uh, I believe, the 1936 election. And, um, and then the book was written in 1935. So it was like a science fiction book that takes place one year in the future. And the reason it's called It Can't Happen Here is that throughout the whole book, all the liberals are saying, oh, it can't happen here. It happened in Germany because Hitler was in power. And it happened in Italy because Mussolini was in power at the time but it can't happen here it can't happen here so every time i would tell someone trump's going to win they, they would say well it can't happen and i'd be like yeah but that's what it said in the book yeah and, <laughs> and it did and, yeah, yeah and horrifyingly i was right um uh my worst nightmares came true and and at the end of that 15 month election process or however long it was um Everybody was ready for, you know, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for this TV show to be over. Uh, this was a horrible TV show and I just want Hillary to win and then we'll just be done with this. But then you realize that wasn't the end of the season. That was just the end of the pilot episode. The, se <laughs> the season has yet to begin. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'd already experienced a whole year's worth of nightmares before he was even elected. And then after he was elected, he just continually exceeded everyone's expectations as to how venal and stupid and ignorant and mean uh, and and cruel and and insane yes. he was. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that, everything you were just saying, and I, I, it was kind of occurring to me that like maybe you could make the argument that the Beach Boys, whether you like it or not, are like kind of the most American band. Because... They've been called that. I mean, they really, they in, in a lot of ways, they they came up really selling a fantasy of kind of mid-century life in America and California right. in particular that was, you know, underneath was, that facade was like a tremendous amount of abuse and mental illness and drugs and, and all and, sorts and, of stuff. And, yeah, and so many layers of tragedy, like seven or eight layers. I mean, the Manson family was even involved at one point. It yeah. was like... <laughs> It, it was. It's just ridiculous that underneath that fantasy was so much pain and sorrow. Yes, and then they sort of break up. You know, in the late sixties. You know, after Brian Wilson sort of tries to make his masterpiece smile, and then and really the rest of their career is kind of in this album as well is sort of informed by the the failure to create smile, which he sort of did reconstruct in later years. But um, you know, and then at the and finally, then they're in the eighties, sort of resurrected to this like horrible, like corporatized nostalgia factory that just right. you know that started in the in the like late 70s that mike love started turning the band into just a uh, you know american graffiti style 
uh, I mean, the movie American Graffiti, you know, just just a retro boomer. Remember when we were teenagers band? Yes. And, and yet that's the, the, the narrative you just gave was the narrative I always had in my head about the Beach Boys. I was never interested in the Beach Boys uh, until I became absolutely obsessed about two or three years ago. And my, the entry point for me was the album Surf's Up. And the strangest thing about my entry point is that my entry point was actually the song Student Demonstration Time, which everybody hates. That was the one that convinced me that this album <laughs> yeah, we'll get was to absolutely that. amazing. Um, but wow, okay. But, but what what happened was uh, at the time, my favorite band was the Coasters. I was in a big Coasters phase. Uh, have you ever listened to the Coasters? They're uh, absolutely amazing. are they like a yak? Is that Yakety Yak or no? Yeah, they do else. Yakety Yak and and Charlie Brown and, and a couple yeah. of like not, you know comedy songs, but there's so much more than than that. And they uh, uh, worked with uh, these amazing writers named Lieber and Stoller, who were uh, also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as songwriters. And um, not that I care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of like the Grammys. I don't care about it. I don't give a shit about it at all until somebody I think is cool is in it. And then, I, <laughs> then, I'm, then I'm really proud of them. But um, the, uh, the thing is, uh, they... Well, I have a bunch of LPs framed on my wall that's in my apartment. And one of them is an album called there called there's a riot going on by Sly and the family stone. And I never knew where that phrase was from. The phrase there's a riot going on is actually part of the chorus of a coaster song. It was actually the Robins. It was before they changed their name to the coasters, but it's a, a song called uh, riot in cell block number nine. And the chorus goes, there's a riot going on down in cell block number nine. And that was my favorite coaster song. Yeah, I mean, it's not actually a coaster song, but it's on the coaster's greatest hits collection that I had. And I realized that that was, that was where Sly and the family stone got the name of that album. And, uh, uh, it became my favorite song. It was my absolute favorite song. Um, so at that point, uh, I, I knew about Pet Sounds and I knew about Smile and I knew that they, those were the two masterpieces. And I just kind of had the same narrative you had of like, well, after that, Brian Wilson just broke down and they never did anything worthwhile again. So I kind of thought I and, and I wasn't particularly interested in the earlier stuff because it's just pop and it's I didn't have any retro nostalgia for it. I'm not from that generation so it really meant nothing to me. So I just thought I had the two Beach Boys albums that you need to know, Chirpette Sounds and Smile, and their masterpieces, but the rest I didn't, I wasn't interested in at all. And then I happened to see the cover, the just the cover image of Surf's Up, the album. Yes, it's amazing. It's so stunning, isn't it? Because you're like, what am I even looking at? Like, what, what was your reaction to seeing that album cover? Well, I mean, it's just so contrary to the the earlier image and it's just it just seems like total defeat if i if i had to like just <clears throat> you know put total defeat it's it's i believe it's a based on a i looked it up it was based on a sculpture of a native american right um who's just sort of tired from riding and it's yeah, it just seems end, exhausted like called the end of the trail it's actually in wisconsin where i used to live oh nice and um and he he looks like his horse is about to die 
and he looks like he's about to fall off the horse. I mean, it's just this incredibly defeated and and uh, sad and and bleak image. And the painting of the of the sculpture on the cover of the album is even bleaker than the sculpture because it's in these really dark colors. It almost looks like it's at night. You 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 almost can't even really see what you're looking at. So I was like, what am I looking at? And then I realized, oh, my God, it's a Native American on a horse. And it reminded me of that. I'd seen that statue before. And then and then I look up in the in the top and there's little lettering. And I'm like, what does that say? And I realized it said the Beach Boys surfs up, <laughs> which is the exact <laughs> opposite of the image. Yeah. You know, and I realized that I was looking at an incredibly ironic and uh, uh, uh sort of uh, image shattering image and yeah. and I realized that okay I've, I've got to find out more about this and then when I uh, you know looked the album up and listened to it and I got to the student demonstration time I realized that's a cover of Ride in Cell Block Number 9 with different words and that's what just blew my mind because that was my very favorite song at the time and yeah. uh, so uh Surf's Up went on to become one of my very, very favorite albums of all time. And I became obsessed with the Beach Boys and I ended up getting all of their stuff. Not all of it. I mean, all of their stuff up to a certain point. But I realized, because that 80s version, I don't have any interest in. But I realized that uh, there was something about the Beach Boys that I didn't know. And I thought I knew a lot about music. I mean, not a lot, but, you know, enough. But I had no idea that this was true. And the way I put it is, you know how the Beatles were like a pop band that would, you know, had matching haircuts and suits and they would sing in front of a crowd of teenage girls who would scream so loud that you couldn't hear the music and that was what they were? Well, if you if that was all you knew about the Beatles and you had no idea about the whole second half of their career, you would be stunned to find out that, oh, well that's not actually the Beatles because what they did is they completely changed because they did drugs. They embraced the counterculture. They started dressing like hippie freaks. They grew big beards and they put out these weird, weird albums that are all masterpieces. Yeah. And, and everybody knows that about the Beatles because the Beatles continued to be the number one band in the world while they went through that change. But what nobody knows is the Beach Boys did that exact same change. Just nobody ever heard the albums. They didn't sell. They were never on classic rock radio. And nobody really knows they exist, except for, like, hardcore Beach Boys fans. Yeah. And I, I, Surf's I, Up is a perfect example of that, of one of those albums. Absolutely. Let's. I want to play something. And this was a song that really jumped out at me. It's one of the two that uh, Brian Wilson's brother Carl wrote. And I think he really um, wrote contributed a couple of really great songs to this album. But this one I like, it's called Feel Flows. And to me, this is great because it kind of gives you this sense of like, it has some of that that harmony kind of classic Beach Boy singing, but there's sort of this weird sort of disconcerting like psychedelic feel to it. I don't this, this album has a very like weird mix of like kind of odd, almost spooky with like corny, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, it, well, it, it's the, the sort of corniness of the surface of the Beach Boys, but this very dark and eerie, uh, and uh, just bleak uh, uh, theme underneath, which is just the troubled times in 1971. Let's listen to Fuel Flows. Yes. 
Now you can hear something really interesting in the vocals here, which is, I think, it's a reverse echo. Yeah, I think okay. you're right, and that's a cool effect. It's a, it is a cool effect. It's when you you record the singing, then you play it backwards, add an echo, and then play it forwards, and the echo is in reverse. It gives it a very psychedelic effect. Yeah, they do some really weird vocal modulation stuff on this album. Um, but what made Feel Feel is the one you wanted to talk about, Matt? I don't know. I just it, it's because it, this one, this is the one that I think if you played it for somebody, they might be like, "Oh, that's the Beach Boys," but yet it's sort of different. You know what I mean? You can tell they've moved on into this like, like a little bit stranger space. You know, but it's fundamentally like a, a good pop song at the same time. This song is, I believe, about Brian Wilson. Carl Wilson wrote it um, about his brother's uh, unstable emotional state. And so there's a lot of darkness behind it. Yet it's so beautiful. Yeah, it really is. There's, there's a part later on with a synth lead that always gets yeah, me. Yeah, that was one of the timestamps. We, we, we don't need to go to it, but when... When that synth comes in, you're just like, I'm listening to the Beach Boys, and this sounds like it's from the 80s. Yeah. Uh, new, new wave synth, even though this is from 1971. And then, then this guy, this like real Jefferson Airplane kind of like guitar thing. Yeah, this is almost... This whole part that we're talking over now is with a flute. It's like prog rock. Yeah, it's for sure. It's not what you would expect. And that, that was really the stunning thing about this album to me, is it's just so not what you would expect. Yeah. We should let's get. I had it at two forty two, Jason. We should hear the synth part because when that jumped out, I was like, "Wow, this could be like a, a new kind of like hipster indie band or something." Here it is. That's so weird. I mean, that's not what you... If, if you just go to the average person and say, I'm going to play the Beach Boys song, they're not going to think it's going to have a synthesizer that goes... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so this was one that just struck out to me. It's just like, wow, this is really... The production on this is really beautiful and like uh, just and strong it, songwriting that, as well. It, it's, it's cool that you are pointing that out about the production because Brian Wilson is known as a genius producer but he didn't do uh, all of the production on this album. He did some of it, but this was the album where Carl Wilson started to really step into uh, those shoes. And um, and that's another reason I like the this middle period of Beach Boys albums is, is it's more like the whole band is all contributing. It's not just yeah. the Brian Wilson solo show. Yeah, the next one I wanted to check out, because this one is like, as soon as I heard it, it's like, oh, this is Brian, for sure, because it had that sort of like deeply weird, just odd, brian sense especially his later kind of like post lsd stuff right. um and it's i can't remember where i read this but it was the best line it was like it was like smiles what happens when a, a profoundly square person takes lsd <laughs> which i thought was a funny line you know what i mean because he's not hip right like he's he's trying to make this almost well, he, like he was hanging out with some pretty hip people during the recording of smile but yeah you're right he's kind of a he's kind of a childlike uh yeah and like uh, innocent like, you know Disney and like it's almost try this is almost like trying to be like a bare necessities kind of song or something but it's like 
what you just there's just odd things where you can tell your somebody that wrote this is maybe a little bit skewed in their their viewpoint i guess at that point right um, but and also better take care of your feet is just like a amazing song title oh you're ta- you're talking about um take a load off your feet yeah yeah, what a what a crazy weird song. It reminds me a lot of Vegetables off Smile, where he's yeah. just singing about eating vegetables, and you're like, Brian, what is going on? <laughs> like health now advice. Now he's singing about taking care of your feet. And he was definitely and, taking and good care of himself. Song. I actually have a little section on my bathroom wall where I I put a little post-it note that says inspirational poetry, because I'm you know I'm a pretty depressed man, and so it, I put things to try to give myself a little boost to see when you know I'm brushing my teeth. And um, I put the uh, the 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 line, uh, you know, uh, take good care of your feet, Pete. I love the fact that the song is addressed to someone named Pete, who apparently <laughs> yeah. has bad feet. But it says, take good care of your feet, Pete, and you better watch out what you eat. You better take care of your life because nobody else will. I know. That's kind of a sad line, like in the middle yeah. of this kind of silly song, which is... Well, let's play it because it's, it's sort of hard to describe this song's vibe unless you hear it. Really, it's. Yeah, I don't think anyone point. else except Brian Wilson could ever really make a song like this. All right, here's "Take a Load Off Your Feet" from the top. I do them when I'm down in the tub with avocado cream. They'll take a rub. And just that like, weird little double track echo yeah. thing is just disconcerting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so it's so psychedelic. Um. There's a particularly psychedelic moment right after the chorus, I think the first chorus, where it fades into like this weird echo. It's, I also like that beep beep when he talks about the car. Yeah, it's yeah. it's so kitschy. Something else yeah. has gotta put you there. Take good care of your feet. Pete. Pete. <laughs> Just that psychedelic part I was talking about. And that's almost like a like a like a reggae kind of vibe, you know, when they do that really like dub reggae kind of effect. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? And this is before dub reggae. Because didn't Lee Scratch Perry sort of invent dub reggae in the mid seventies? think so i i'm don't i'm not that great on it though some of it might have been going on but it's probably just a coincidence i highly doubt brian well, would have I'm been sure, aware I'm sure of that it's a coincidence but it's interesting that it's that same kind of like echoing effects yeah um um one thing i wanted to point out was the very just just that one of i i i did way too many timestamps and we don't need to use them but um my first timestamp was just track one zero 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 because the first two seconds of this album have this, it sounds kind of cheerful, but there's this weird dissonance where some of the notes are off and it is symbolic of the whole album to me of like, you think it's the beach boys. It's, it's this California fantasy, but there's a few notes that are off and you realize that underneath all this is something very strange and weird and wonderful. That's going to happen and dark. Here's don't go near the water from the top. Don't go near the water 
It's just the fact that the first song is called Don't Go Near the Water and the name of the <laughs> yeah. band is The Beach Boys. I, and you're like, man. okay, something, something unusual is happening. It is like a statement, uh, it's sort of like a meta statement, right? Like it's it's their legacy as America's band, as the beachiest, like maybe the second biggest thing impacting beach culture next to like Jaws. And, right. and for their first album title or excuse me first track on this album to be called don't go near the water because it's all fucked up because yeah. we've ruined it like <laughs> yeah, yeah like well it's just saying don't go near the water if you plan to do it any harm mm-hmm. and um it, you know saying that we should all get together and try to protect the water uh at sure the time, yeah. it might have seemed corny because it's an ecological theme but it's only grown more relevant in the last 50 years i mean you know our destruction of the environment is more relevant now than ever yeah um uh, you know speaking of the the weird inverse beach boys image that we've been talking about just with the title surfs up you think it's going to be songs about cars girls and surfing like you think of as the beach boys but it turns out it's not it's all this social commentary about troubled times in 1971 um I love everything about this album. I love all 10 songs. I love the album cover. And I love the insert poster, which I should have uh, emailed you about, actually. I should have mentioned that you could have looked that up online. There's an insert poster that you know pulls out of the album and you fold it out. And it's like you know, two squares wide, a rectangular poster. And the poster is just a dried riverbed with no water, like in the middle of a drought. And the riverbed is cracked into those hexagonal, you know, beehive-shaped, shapes that like sand and dirt forms when when the water dries and it's just a shockingly bleak image it doesn't say the beach boys on it it doesn't say anything on it it's just wordless and you know when when you pull that out of the actual lp and unfold it and look at it you you realize what the hell is going on this is yeah. the beach boys but this is wow. not a beach there's there's no water like within 50 miles of wherever this photo was taken it's in the middle of a desert, you know. Um, I think, you know, before we kind of get into the last half of the album and, and we, a little time for student dem- demonstration time, uh, I wanted to just quick, just because this was probably the least, like, mournful song and, and probably the most upbeat song, but um, Carl Wilson, man, Long Promised Road, this is just a great... Oh, my God, what a song. ...pop song, like, and what a chorus on this song. Like, yes. so we can just play, like, a verse and a chorus, but I just wanted to call this out as, like, being, like... And he's one to write a catchy pop song. Of, of Brian Wilson not being the only genius in the Beach Boys, because Carl Wilson uh, was a genius too. So hard to answer futures, riddle when ahead is seeming so far behind. You know, what this makes me think of Matt is Richard Manuel of the band. I could hear yes. his voice doing this track. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Mm. I hadn't thought of that. So hard to shed yeah, this this verse is very like how he wrote too. Let my soul automatically so but I hit hard at the battle that's confronting me. But even this is a battle song, you know, he's fighting things, you yeah. know, his demons yeah, or whatever. He's striving to overcome all the shackles that are holding him down. That part but man, that's just a shackles that are holding me down. His voice goes up in that really high note on the word shackles. Uh, it's a really powerful song. I mean, all of the songs are. Um, but this is really one of the standouts. And it, this album came, as I understand, after like 
a run of bad commercial performance for them, right? Like public opinion uh, it, had it sort was of part of a series of completely essentially failures of albums commercially uh, and and critically. Um, none of these albums, like I said, no one knows they exist because they were never played on the radio and they never sold. Mm-hmm. And and it was it was such a treasure trove to discover them. It was like it was like you know, like I say, if you didn't know there were any uh, uh, Beatles albums after Beatles for sale. And then you you discover from Rubber Soul on, there's just a series of yeah. masterpieces that you didn't even yeah. know about. That's what it was like for me to discover this era of the music. Definitely, it's not hard Absolutely. to read that story into all these songs too. Like the battle that's confronting me and Don't Go Near the Water. It's it's not hard to read. Like this is intentional image management. Um, yeah. Is there another another or I guess either? Well, of you, is there another place you wanted to go in this album? I mean, I f- feel like we got to wrestle with student demonstration time because it kind of is in the middle of the record. Everybody and it, hates it because it, first of all, I, everybody hates Mike Love. Well, yes. Mike Love, and, Trump supporter, general dickhead. A guy who's willing to get his picture taken next to any president, whether they're a Republican in, or not. Yeah. Uh, a guy who's willing to hang out with John Stamos just to get on full house. A guy, <laughs> a guy who has done many, many, many uncool things in his life. Uh, including it, hating pet sounds and not liking smile. But uh, nonetheless, I would say uh, he's done many, many uncool things in his life. But I hold, and I realize I'm in the minority here, but I hold that student demonstration time is not one of the uncool things he's done. Wow. It's, a, it's, a, it's okay. a song that is a, first of all, it's a cover of an incredibly great song called Riot in Cell Block Number 9. And secondly, uh, it's, it's a protest song about police shootings of unarmed civilians. I mean, sound familiar? That's that's what the song is about. It's 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 taking a, a hard line stance uh, against the killing of protesters by the police, and it, it mentions hmm. the Jackson State killings, which is, you know, uh, there's a great line where it says, uh, "Nothing much was said about it, and next to nothing done," mm-hmm. and then the rhyme is the pen is mightier than the sword, but it's no match for a gun. And yeah. I thought that was so spot on because nothing much was done said about it. And next to nothing was done. And the right. reason was it was right before the Kent state shootings, which got a lot of uh, controversy and attention in the media at the time, because those students were white, but the students at, at Jackson state were black and hmm. everybody ignored it. And one of the only people who didn't ignore it was weirdly enough, my club. It's very strange. Um, and um, also just to provide a little context for people, um, I think one of the big things of, among Beach Boys fans about Mike Love is that as Brian Wilson was kind of trying to strive to create sort of, to break out of their sort of teen pop thing and create these more kind of grandiose and, and really brilliant pop albums. And I think Pet Sounds is generally considered one of the great pop albums of all time. And uh, within, the, within the Beach Boys, Mike... Um, could be kind of, I think, quite cruel and discouraging to Brian trying to kind of, because he was very concerned about their commercial image. And I think that he said and did a lot of things that Brian, who was a very fragile, a very, very fragile human being, um, and kind of ruined his confidence. Brian. Yeah. And so that's, I think that's really the, I mean, he's sort of an asshole in a lot of ways, but I think for Beach Boys fans, that's the sort of thing is people felt that, you know, could Brian have accomplished more? Could Brian have been in a better state, you know, without Mike kind of constantly kind of mocking him and things like that? So that's a little bit of the animus, I would say. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the Beach Boys became a very schizophrenic band because Brian was 
was not touring and he he kind of did his thing and then Mike Love did his thing on the road and Mike Love wanted to stay uh you know every record they came out with was a gold record and every record that they every single they came out with was on the charts and that's what he wanted and he still wants that to this day and to this very day as a very old man he's still touring with his version of the Beach Boys and they're still playing songs like Fun 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 and Surfing USA and yet there was a period where you know after the failure of Smile where they all kind of got together and worked together and one of those albums uh is is uh is Surf's Up and um and another thing just before we start it I want to point out that one of the things I love about this album is every song is different there's not a single song that sounds like another song on the album there's 10 songs they're all completely different they might as well be mm-hmm. on different bands and this makes for some jarring tonal shifts when you transition from one song to the next and those jarring tonal shifts are part of the effectiveness of the record to me because they really br- bring out the idea that this is a disjointed album about troubled times and so you come out of disney girls which is this fantasy about escaping back into the past and escaping the troubled times that we live in and going back to 1957 and having everything be wonderful and it's this gentle gentle song and it fades out and then you get the hard rock and roll guitar of student demonstration time coming in that just is a jolt to the listener and i find that amazing (laughs) it is a jolt let's listen to it All these siren sounds, they're a theremin. Oh, really? And Mike Love actually um, sings the song through a bullhorn as if he's in the middle of a, hmm. a protest and a riot. Starting out with Berkeley free speech and later on at People's Park. The winds have changed, fanned into flames, student And by the way, if you've never heard Ride in Cell Block Number 9 by the Robins, you should check it out. It's one of the great songs of all time. So harassed. They called the special riot squad the LA County Sheriff when there's a riot going on. I also love Mike Love's sarcasm in these lyrics when he says, The police felt so yeah. harassed. <clears throat> you know, you, you know yeah. like, oh, well, the poor police. In, in, I mean, in light of what came later, though, was he being sarcastic or not? You know, that's what I always I, I, question. I, I, I've had this discussion with a lot of people, and some people say, no, this song is pro-cop. And I'm like, it's absolutely not. See, I interpreted it a little bit more, I wouldn't say, you know, pro-police violence, but I, I would say that a little bit like, hey, line. kids, you know, like... I guess I interpret it a little bit more like you you kind of get what's coming to you a little bit, or you know, if you put oh, yourself I, in that I, situation. I, I think of it that way at all. He he, he describes the, the dead at Kent State as martyrs. That is true. And, yeah. And he describes the war as useless. And he's clearly on the side of the protesters in the song. He's he's being uh, uh, vicious in his sarcasm, and he could be a vicious man, mm-hmm. but. Um, but it's definitely uh, a song that is saying, you know, a, a, another reason that sometimes people interpret the way you just did is the song ends with him saying, stay away if there's a riot going on. Yeah. As if he's saying, don't protest. But I do not believe that's what he's saying. He's just saying, okay. 
he's saying if you're at a protest and the police escalated into a riot, get the hell out of there because they're mm. going to shoot you and kill you. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I mean, that's interesting. You know, I mean, it's definitely, I guess, a more textually rich song than I thought. Yeah. I, but, I guess uh, there are a lot of ways to read this song, but I think one thing we can all agree on is uh, that he tries to rhyme harassed with sheriff and that, that alone it, it is a crime work. in itself. <laughs> he, also, he gets the wrong uh, syllable on, on uh, rhyming bullets. He says bullets instead. I mean, he says bullets instead of saying bullets. <laughs> yeah, he's rhyming it with ets. Um, so yeah, it's not without its flaws. But I, I um, will say that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say there's another jarring tonal shift as this song fades out. You go into feel flows, which we have already heard, and that song is back to this dreamy psychedelic quality. So you go from Disney Girls, which is. Uh, uh, in, in, on the surface, seeming incredibly dreamy and peaceful. Uh, it, it's actually quite a sad song. But then you go into that hard guitar of, of the, the cover of Riot and Cell Block Number 9, and then you go back into this dreamy psychedelia of, of uh, feel flows. Um, those, those transitions are really jarring, and, and uh, there's a lot of different tones that are struck. And I, I think it's the sequencing of the album is perfect because... They don't flow naturally into each other. They they mm -hmm. abruptly shift. Um, I did yeah. want to talk a little bit about Disney Girls. There was one timestamp. Uh, starts at two oh seven to two forty four. Just listen to how corny the lyrics are. But it's doing that on purpose. It's not accidentally being corny. Uh, this is the middle eight part of the song. It's not the main melody, but. describing why he loves the girl and he says so she's really swell because she likes church meanwhile these guys like all are doing coke and shit you know yeah they're doing lsd and coke and they're smoking a lot of hash and they're they're all um they're all uh you know they're going to mike love went to the see the maharishi in india with the beatles and mia farrow and and uh mike love at this point is wearing a big white robe and he's still into transcendental meditation now but he doesn't dress like that anymore but I mean, you know, they have big beards and they're freaks. And and so this song is all about, oh, I want to return to a more peaceful time. But the chorus has the very key line, which is, it says, reality is not for me. And this is not a song about reality. This is a song about escaping reality into mm. an imaginary past that probably never existed. And I also love the fact that Disney, the word Disney, when he says Disney girls, is he does it with three syllables. Yeah, which I just yeah. Like it's so great. He says Disney, <laughs> Disney. girls. And, also, uh, there, <laughs> there's a part where he's talking about like making wine in a garage in Cape Cod. I was like, "What the fuck <laughs> right. are you talking about? Like, right. you've never done that." Yeah, I, well, I've, I've never done that. But uh, but just the title is ironic because Disney girls. I mean, who's the most famous Disney girl? Is Annette Funicello, who was in all those beach uh, beach party movies that Brian Wilson did music for. And so it's almost deliberately invoking the Beach Boys' 
old image uh, of, of this beach party, you know, Annette Funicello, Disney girl, um, and then contrasting it with what's about to happen. Then that song fades out and you go into the hard yeah. uh, guitar of, of the opening of, of uh, that, that great Robbins cover uh, and with student demonstration time. And um, the, the effect is, is almost brutal to go from Disney, Disney girls directly into student demonstration time. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, I think, you know, sometimes people say, oh, this would be a great album if it just didn't have student demonstration time on it. Or sometimes they say it would be a great album if it didn't have take a load up your feet. That song's too weird. Or it would be a great album if it didn't have, it would be a perfect album if it didn't have Disney girls. Cause that's the one corny song. I think those people are kind of missing the point because all of those songs have, uh, an element, maybe not the the feet one, but the other two definitely have an element of irony and uh, sarcasm to them. Mm. You know what? You're starting to sell me on this, Todd. I don't know. I don't know if I like it, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm uh, in the minority. Whenever I tell some, somebody, not only do I not hate the song "Student Demonstration Time," I actually love it. They just look at me like I'm insane. Like <laughs> I, and Beach Boys fans hate that song. I mean, they just hate it. Yeah. But it yeah. was just, it, I think it's because I came at it from a weird angle, because like I said, the song Riot in Cell Block Number 9 was my favorite song at the time. Yeah. And because it's called Student Demonstration Time, I didn't know that it was a cover until it came on, and I realized, wait a minute, this is a cover of my favorite song. Yeah, on this what album. a weird and it, series of events. Yeah, it was a strange series of events that sort of opened my mind to that song in a way that probably most Beach Boys fans wouldn't be open to. Sure. Right. I, w- I want to move on to what I kind of consider, I mean... Got it. Really striking. I mean, the last three songs on this album, to me, that's where Brian Wilson finally comes out of the bedroom. Yeah, I mean, and to, blows to me, everybody's mind. If you had to kind of like summarize, maybe like why people consider Brian Wilson a, a pop songwriting genius, and, and, and truly, whether you like him or not, I mean, his just absolute, completely unique uh, style of songwriting, completely unique voice. Um, I think these last three songs um, are, are really probably as good as anything of if you had to sum it up um starting with uh and this one i, I love because i didn't know this until i got to the wikipedia but uh the first one is a day in the life of a tree and oh, i like the fa- song the brutal and, song and and the best thing is like i love that the beach boys essentially sort of at this point are like not so much a band as like a corporation with a bunch of competing interests and things right and and so i think it's kind of amazing that this intensely painful sort of like you know personal statement of like brian is a tree that sort of you know a sick tree <laughs> sort of disintegrating is actually sung by their manager, which is insane to well, me. The, do, do you mind if I tell a quick story about that? Go um, ahead. It is weird that the manager sang that song. He's not even a member of the band. So you're like, why wouldn't Brian just sing it? Well, the manager had written the words and Brian tricked him into singing it because he was trying to get Brian to come out of the bedroom. This is the point where Brian is starting to retreat into, you know, what they call the lost years. Uh, where he just stayed in bed all day uh, and be and ballooned up to 300 pounds and, and just was avoiding life and, and had essentially destroying his mind with drugs. And um, he didn't want to do any work. And he's like, Brian, you've got to do the vocals for the day in the life of tree. And he had written the music and produced it, but he said, Brian just decided to, as an act of kind of childlike, obstinance and and uh, stubbornness 
he didn't want to do it. So he, so he tricked him into singing it. And he says, he's like, well, I just don't feel like I really know how to sing it right. Can you just sing one line and just give me an idea of what it's supposed to sound like so the manager would sing one line? And he'd go, okay, well, I kind of get it, but just sing, sing the next line. And, and he kept doing that until he got him to sing every line. Oh, wow. And then he clapped his hands like a little boy who just got away with something, you know, with calling in sick to work, to, to not to work, to school. And, uh, you know, he, he raised his arms above his head and he's like, you're the singer on this album, on, on this track, on the album. And uh, the manager was actually quite upset about it, but he tricked him into singing it. Um, yeah, let's listen to it. Cause I've heard I, a lot I think of in a way... Of, I've heard a lot of interpretations of this song as being uh, an autobiographical song about Brian talking about how he feels like a tree that is dying. I don't even think it is that. I think it's a straight-up environmentalist song, just like uh, Don't Go Near the Water. And it's literally narrated by a real tree that is dying. And, and the song, you know, the, 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 that last line where it says, trees like me weren't meant to live if all this world can give is pollution and slow death. And you're like, really? That's really, <laughs> you're really going there. Uh, but that's what he does. And I, I, I you know, it, I'm sure it reflects Brian's state of mind, but it also is just, I think, it's not necessarily symbolic of a tree. I think it's just literally a tree that is dying. And it's a song about pollution killing a tree. Let's hear it. It's, a, it's really beautiful. too i think to brian's credit i think this kind of naive sort of almost non-professional singer kind of delivery actually works you know it in this, really in this sense i mean you know maybe brian wasn't just being obstinate and stubborn maybe he wasn't just playing a trick on his manager he really knew what he was doing all along it, every time you sell brian short for being he's insane now or he's, he's past his prime he would do incredible things he always seemed to be ahead of the curve um you know, this is an example. That bird-like sound of the organ. Mm-hmm. It's and such then, a good chirping. Yeah, and then as the song reaches its climax, these organs come in that literally sound like church, like a like a pipe organ. Um, I don't know how they got that sound in the studio, but Van uh, Dyke Parks actually sings in the in the cascading harmonies at the end. Like, into a round you hear Van Dyke Parks the voice he's the yeah the lyricist for Smile which is Brian's greatest work oh okay yeah Van Dyke is a very uh, unique lyricist unique person oh my god uh, very, he is, yes he's on Twitter he's funny he's he's just he's a southern oh, he's dandy very, you, know? very you, you want to blow your mind someday when you've got an hour to kill read his Wikipedia page Van Dyke Parks Wikipedia page that guy has had an amazing amazing life he was like singing with the opera in New York when he was like four or something. I mean, I can't, you know, it's crazy. Also, his 67 album Song Cycle by Van Dyke Parks is just 
one of the weirdest albums ever. Yeah, I can't even really put it in words. It's just yeah. bizarre. You it's mentioned so beautiful. the bare necessities earlier. Uh, Van Dyke Parks did the arrangements on that song. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's Van Dyke Parks' voice right there. Is pollution. And then, and then it ends on that incredible bummer that we just heard, where he's just literally a tree is like, trees like me weren't meant to live. All this world can give is pollution and slow death. And and then and he says, you know, there's nothing left for me. And that's the end of the song. And you're like, wow, that's a major bummer. Like that's a huge bummer. That's not just a little bummer. That's a giant bummer. And then what comes <laughs> next? An even bigger bummer. <laughs> yeah, and 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 these last two now, I think we're we're dealing with, in my mind, at least, a really high level of like absolute songwriting. Genius. I mean, this absolute is this genius. is um, "Till I Die." Um, this is the second to last song, and this is a I can consider it a classic. Um, and there's just a lot to this song, I think. So let's play it, and I think at one thirty one, we'll probably get there. But there's some just some of the harmony and and vocal arrangements are mind blowing on this. Yeah, the lyrics are as bleak of lyrics as Brian Wilson ever wrote. Even just that first line. As a person who has suffered from very serious depression my entire life, I really relate to this song. And you realize that Brian is writing from a position of experience. He's not just writing sad lyrics. To write sad lyrics, he's writing from the depth of his soul. Do you, do you hear that more in the lyrics or in the music? Or both? Well, in the lyrics and the music. But the, 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 the lyrics themselves, it, I mean... There are not very many. It says, I'm a, I'm a cork on the ocean, floating alone in the empty sea. How deep is the ocean? How deep is the ocean? And then he says, I'm a rock in a landslide, rolling down a mountainside. Uh, how deep is the valley? How deep is the valley? And then he says, what he's saying now, I'm a, I'm a leaf on a windy day. Pretty soon I'll be blown away. How long will the wind blow? How long will the wind blow? And then what comes next is the devastating lyric, which is, until I die. It's about, to, it's about to come up right here. Right there. That emphasis on the word die. And then it says these things all yeah. be until I die. That's all the word. So you So your your last three songs are this Brian Wilson trilogy of of uh a super bummer about the tree, then a super bummer about how you're just going to be a little insignificant nothing until you die. And then the next song after that 
is Brian Wilson's greatest song, which is uh, actually from Smile. Um, It's one of the few songs from Smile, uh, you know, different songs from Smile leaked out on other Beach Boys albums uh, over the course of of the next several years. The actual album wasn't released until about, well, about 40 years later, more than 40 years later. But um, the song Surf's Up is uh, yeah. a, a key element of the of the album Smile and you know, is a key element of this album. It's funny, too, because, you know, obviously Smile, like, uh, I went through a phase where uh, Matthew Cotto, actually, a former guest on this show, a former co-worker of mine, he used to bring in, he had these dodgy European, in, you know, imports of, like, the complete Smile sessions where it was just, like, one track of a guy, like, munching on a carrot. You know, right, right. for Before vegetables and like into a finished form. Yeah, and like you know, thirty second takes where they screw up and they stop that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but in a weird way, I mean, now he's he's recreated basically twice. He had Brian Wilson present "Smile," which is uh, with yeah, new- the only complete version because it has that's the only version with the completed lyrics by Van Dyke Parks. But the Beach Boys aren't on it. But then they've kind of done. They did a basically as as good as they could get with the existing vintage Beach, Beach Boys material, and they released that a few years ago. All that, and I, I love those albums. I mean, I, I love Smile, and I think Brian Wilson's Smile really turned out amazing. Um, in a weird way, though, I kind of like Surf's Up better in this context. It's it's the closer, uh, and some people say that, it, you know, the closer of Smile, the climax, if you will, of the whole concept album is the song Good Vibrations, the, the way that he finally finished it. But uh, the, um, I've read that the original closer was supposed to be Surf's Up. Uh, that was how he was originally structuring it in his mind. And so it really is appropriate in the context of this album. It's not just a holdover from Smile or a leftover. It It, it is the climax of of this album. And it's, it makes sense that the album is called Surf's Up. Yeah. Because um, uh, it, it's, it's, the, it's the spiritual heart of the whole album. And so you go from a giant bummer to a giant bummer, and then you go back into another giant bummer, which surfs up and yet it has a happy ending. Yeah. Which is what makes this album so great. It, it's about a spiritual rebirth uh, and, and the way it ends is, you know, it ends with joy. And so he's taking you through all of these bleak songs that, you know, with the possible exception of take a load off your feet, all the songs are pretty eerie and sad. And then you get to, we also didn't mention the the welfare song uh, "Looking at Tomorrow" that Carl did, just an acoustic song, uh, which is also very sad. And then and then you get to the end, and suddenly there's joy. Uh, it's really really something. A the and these are Van Dyke Park's best lyrics too. This next line is one of my favorite lines in all of rock. Columnated ruins domino. It's a complete sentence. It's got an adjective, a noun, (laughs) and a verb. Columnated ruins domino. Sounds like an activation phrase. Looks <laughs> well, like ancient Roman ruins that have columns 
that have fallen over like dominoes. There's a great pun we just passed where he says, uh, the music hall, a costly bow. And so he works the word Holocaust into the, into the words, the music hall, a costly bow. Jesus. You know, I got to say it. I think this is my favorite song. I think this is not only my favorite Beach Boy song. I think it may be my favorite song. Like ever? Yeah. Wow. Which is weird because I like a lot of, you know, punk rock. (laughs) Is that a new realization? Um, Well, I didn't really become obsessed with the Beach Boys until, like I said, the last two or three. So it's (laughs) relative. The laughs come hard in old Lang Syne. When he says dove nested towers, the hour is like just, just really great wordplay from. Yeah. Is it uh, to you, Todd? Is it telling a story, or is it just kind of setting a scene with all this well, wordplay and mischievous? But but um, Brian Wilson has told the story. He says it's about a man who goes through a spiritual awakening. He awakens to the emptiness of his fancy life, hmm. and he goes from the the from the music hall, a costly bow, from the the uh, where people are watching the opera glasses and seeing the pit and the pendulum drawn behind the opera glasses, and then um, it goes. I wish I wouldn't have talked over what we just played, but it uh, it goes into he goes to a oh. cellar. Uh, uh, bar and then experiences this sort of rebirth and and it ends with the words the child is father to the man which is uh, a motif from earlier in Smile but um, here's the joy Here, yeah, and here's another part where like his his vocal arrangements are so unique to him and, and so yeah. amazing like no one did harmonies like like even an early like you know, surf rock type beats, you know, like they've always had this like tonality to their harmonies. That was like nobody else. I never thought I would be interested in those early songs, but I got so interested in the beach boys middle period that I ended up getting all those early albums. And I love them. Um, you know, it's very out of character for me, but I love them all. But what we talked over was the, the titular line where it says surfs up, which is the only mention in the song surfs up of surfing. There's, the song is not about surfing at all. And just like this album is not about surfing, but it's called Surf's Up. The same is true of the song. But the the line is so brilliant. He says, Surf's up, mmm, 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 aboard a tidal wave. And there's six syllables that are left blank where he just says, mmm, mmm. And, uh, I think I timestamped that. Let's go back and actually hear that exact moment because I talked over it. Um, where he actually says, I think it starts around. Actually, you know what? I don't have it. Why wouldn't I do that? Oh, 221. Started at 221. A choke of grief, hard hardened. A choke of grief, hard hardened I. Beyond belief, a broken, a broken man too tough to cry. to cry. 
And then it says Surf's up Board a tidal wave That's it I just wanted to I just wanted to give that its moment Because I talked over it Actually keep going though There's a This moment's great too Often spring you gave I heard the Right here God Wonderful Children's song. So beautiful. One of the most. I mean, it's like when you think about loneliness. You know what I mean? Just that the way yeah. that sounds. And then, and then again, the cascading heart. As it fades out. Yeah. I mean, this is you know, like you said, this is kind of considered his great. You know, the apex of his ambitious. You know, period. I guess. Yes. And, you know, you can be easy to dismiss it on this album because it's just a leftover from Smile, but you have to remember that for 45 years, the only way anyone ever heard the song Surf's Up was if they listened to the album Surf's Up and heard it at the end. So I think it counts as a legitimate legitimate part of this album. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for the pick. This was really, like I said, I, I know a lot of the Beach Boys stuff, and I, for some reason, always just skip my... Uh, skip my attention for some reason it's it was be, really be sure you go online and look up the insert poster it's just amazing that desert image uh, i will uh, um so okay, let's that... let's go on to this next one because <laughs> well <laughs> I, here i was been talking about how how bleak this album is and how sad <laughs> it is and and how devastatingly emotional it is and then the one that you assigned me is uh similarly a complete <laughs> emotionally devastating experience like i said yeah. I, I listened to it about four times and i feel like i need to listen to it 10 times to even really absorb it yeah it's yeah. so dark it's so so, dark. so nina nastasha is a a very uh i mean she's kind of one of those people i try to like jason it's a little bit like blue oyster cult like i try to kind of push her on people <laughs> um she's she's very i'm a huge well we, let's not get into blue oyster cult again um but um, I'm happy to she, talk to you about Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> she she's a very um, she's been around for a long time. She kind of puts out albums sporadically. Uh, she does very few interviews. Um, I don't still know a lot about her. Um, she she grew up in Hollywood. I think her parents were immigrants. Yeah, um, I think she lived. That was another similarity between the two albums that I noticed that they're both L.A. albums. Yeah, and and she's uh, I mean, she she's wasn't in L.A. when she wrote it, but she was writing about her childhood in L.A. Yeah, or, and according she, to the internet, she uh, she's worked exclusively. Uh, all her albums are produced by um, Steve Albini of Big Black Shellac fame, also famous for producing uh, In Utero by Nirvana, Jesus Lizard, P.J. Harvey, Neurosis. Like, so it's kind of interesting. And it, it's sort of known for the records. With them. That really threw me when I listen to this i was you know I, I knew it was an albini production i knew it was on touch and go so i was expecting something like killdozer yeah, <laughs> you know or, yeah. or, or 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 the jesus lizard and that's not what you got at all that yeah the so other, the other thing that the two albums had in common i thought was they're both completely unexpected yeah and it's, it's weird because he's known obviously albini's known for like these really aggressive kind of noisy productions and he's he actually extremely uh, transgressive like you know I, I told you i have all these albums uh, framed on my wall mm -hmm. one of them is now surfs up i do i did buy an lp of that just to hang it on my wall but 
uh, right on my wall, right above where I'm sitting right now is a big black album called Songs About Fucking. Yeah. And <laughs> w- when I think of Albini, I think of uh, a guy who's going out of his way to write songs like Jordan, Minnesota, or, you know, you know or Kerosene, yeah. that are just shocking and completely transgressive and yeah. are, are, are utterly negative, you know, just as assault on the senses. Yeah. And I would say that there's certainly a, not transgressive, but there's a darkness to her music and uh, allusions to, I think, you know, on this album in particular, I think heroin. Um, yeah, there's two references to heroin that and, kind of illuminated the album for me. But she, she to me, I, 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 I've seen her twice live and like she came through once on her own, once with um, Jim White, uh, who was in a band called Dirty Three. Um, he's a great, amazing drummer. Um, and she's, there's never been more like maybe like 75 people there. Um, and I, she doesn't seem to be very career oriented in terms of trying to like do stuff to make herself more popular. Um, but I think the people like myself that like her are, are really like her a lot. Um, I would say I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you, how did this album come into your life? Because I had never heard of her and I had never heard of this album and I never would have listened to it if I hadn't been assigned it by you. And I'm really grateful that you assigned it because, um, it's the sort of thing where just the genre is something that I probably would just skip just because I don't have a lot of connection to that genre. And, uh, you know, the indie folk, uh, you know, woman singer songwriter, you know, I, I like Nico case. A lot of this album reminded me of Amy Mann's music for Magnolia, uh, you know, where it's, it's pretty and folky folksy, but it's also very, very dark and sad. Um, but I just thought, how did you discover this album? You know, it was a friend of mine actually, um, I think he recommended at the time it was a new album was called uh, run, uh, run to ruin. Um, mm. and he was just one of the records like, wow, this is cool. And then, and then I think she was coming through and he kind of said, we should go see her. Um, so I went to go see her and then seeing her live, I was just, you know, was that just kind of devastating? Yeah. I mean, she, she's so good at, you know, she was just her and a guitar and she, you know, she plays all the finger picking stuff. Great. And she just has a very presence. Like if you've seen, I mean, you obviously saw the album covers. She's one of those people that like, looks like she's from a different century. Yes. Like, she can, she kind of looks like she should be in like the 1920s or something. Just yeah, like, yeah, she just, yeah. she seems like she's not of this time. Um, and yeah, I just, and then the sad thing too, is for people, if you go on Spotify, you'll see some of her albums, the touch and go stuff. Sadly, like half her catalog is on this record label called, uh, what was it? Cat something. Fat Cat Records, and it's so a lot of her albums, like half her albums, aren't on streaming or really in print right now, which is a shame because like they're all very good, mm. um, all very different. And she had one album with Jim White on drums, it was really great. So yeah, on leaving, you follow me and Outlaster are unfortunately not on streaming. So she has like another half of her catalog that's kind of even more obscure. Um, but yeah, some about her, I guess the thing with her is that. <sighs> she just has such a very heavy presence and I feel like I'm always hearing these like, like almost like a, the sound and fury by Faulkner where, you know, it's like, Mm. you're kind of getting this story, but you feel like you're missing details of like who these people are and like what's going on. And they're sort of like these fragments of somebody's life. Well, not only Uh, did I listen to the album four times, I, I read all the lyrics on the internet uh, multiple times to try to really understand what the songs were about and there are a few songs that are explicable by reading the lyrics, and you can clearly understand what they're saying. But most of them, you cannot. 
But what you can tell is that even though you have no idea what it means, it's very obvious that Nina Nastasia knows exactly what they mean. And they're yeah. very personal to her because they have that weight. Yeah. And, and also she just, her voice is just, her control over her voice and it's just, it's really great. So where would you like to start, um, Todd? I mean, I'm, I, I like all these songs. I don't think there's a bad one. Well, I, again, have so many timestamps that I'm sure we, we don't have time to get through them all, but um, uh, I guess we don't need to play it, but just the song Dear Rose starts off so bleak uh, as an opening track. Um, I can't remember the exact line, but it's something like, I, I, I misplaced everything you gave me. You gave me everything. You think, well, that's yeah, let's hear that's, it. That's really serious. <laughs> let's let's hear it because Dear Rose is a great song and it's the opener. Dear Rose, I misplaced everything. That's it. That's the whole song. It's just this, yeah. this heartfelt apology for the, apparently the, betraying everything that someone gave you. <laughs> yeah, and she I like her too because this isn't uncommon in her catalog that songs just kind of are as long as she feels like they need to be. Mm. And then they kind of just come and go, which I think is interesting. You know, one thing, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to continue talking about Surf's Up, but I, I did notice the similarities between the two albums and one of them was that uh, on the surface, they're different than what they are underneath. And when you first hear the song we just heard, you know, the gentle guitar picking, a very pretty female voice, you might be mistaken for thinking that this music is mellow. Because on the surface, it sounds mellow, like something you might put on when you want to relax and have a cup of tea and just, you know, take, take a chill pill and relax. But there's nothing relaxing or mellow about this album. This album is like two black eyes. It's so emotionally heavy and so dark. Yeah. And um, the, 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 just the short little song we just heard is a perfect example. But you were talking about her voice, and I will go to a timestamp now. It's, it's the timestamp is in uh, the song, A Love Song, um, which is track six. Uh, if you just start at the beginning and go for the first 30 seconds, there's this amazing thing where she's singing this very simple melodic line and, and, and they're all kind of like one syllable words. And then she gets to the word moon and she turns it into like a 20 syllable word. It's just, it's just incredible. And also that dog sound. I think that's a musical song. The dog out on the hill He wants to lick the moon 
so astounding. Yeah. I also, the line he wants to lick the moon. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the dog wants to lick the moon. And then there's those dog sounds. I think that's a musical saw. I think, I think I, you're right. Yeah. I think I read that um, in the some of the reviews we're talking about that there's a musical song and she uses it beautifully because it doesn't sound like music even it sounds like a howling dog mm-hmm. so that that was just the, the one that one of the moments in the album that leapt out to me in terms of her vocals. Mm-hmm. You know what it reminds me of is if you've ever had a dog and you make like a howling song or sound around them and they just sort of go into it. When she says moon, she turns it into so many syllables and sort of goes up and down, sort of almost like a whale, almost like a howl. And then the saw follows her. I don't know. It just, it stuck out to me. as like it, a it's long like, time it's dog like there's a dog sitting at her side that starts yeah, yeah. singing along. Yeah. To her voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, where, where from here, either Todd or Matt, if you got a timestamp, Matt, do you have anything? Um, I I'd like to hear, um, underground. I think just like, this is a, a little bit, I don't, the part where this goes into the chorus to me is just so, so like infectious and like, uh, you know, it, it's still dark, but it's a little bit more active. And I, I just, I think this is a great song, especially the, the build up to the chorus kind of, which comes a little bit out of, out of the blue on this song is just amazing to me. Okay. I had a timestamp at 48 seconds in where there's just a pause. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get there. We're, we'll get there. But I, I just thought it was so great because the arrangements leave so much room. That, that there's yes. almost a second of total silence in the middle of the song. The band on this album's amazing. Well, what is the band on this album? That's another thing I wanted to, because I didn't find information about that. Whoever I, they I looked are, it up. And, who, and there's no credit given to whoever did the arrangements. Was it Albine? Or was it her? These arrangements are No, it's, it's a collection amazing. of guys, they're, they're, but they're, I, they're, I didn't really... None of them were too well-known. Hmm. Yeah, there's that pause, like almost a full second of pause. Most producers wouldn't leave that long. But the lyrics of this song, my God, they're, they're, it's, it's, from what I can tell, she's standing in a graveyard. And she's, you're so serene underneath the weeds. She's addressing a dead person in a coffin. And she's asking them to save her by parachuting her underground like wanting to die and that was a theme that I heard a lot in this album wanting to die ah talked over your moment go back I talked come over up the again. burst but no I interpreted that that it was, she was talking to a dead person at least that was my interpretation but also the first like I said they're very inscrutable and the first line was like I, I'm awake I know because I'm afraid which is just a very like Grim line as well. This isn't the only song that expresses a wish to die. Oh, it's a recurring theme throughout the album. Paris. 
Yeah, I just love that break. It's so good. And there's another thing about her is that she, she, her delivery of these kind of very obscure and kind of dark lyrics, there's some sort of guileless and kind of like very straightforward about the way she sings them that I think mm-hmm. I find even more affecting. Because um, she doesn't really feel like she's... It's like dramatic music, but some, something about her vocals is almost kind of plain spoken to me. I think there was a quote from Albini I saw online where he said, this music is sparse and grandiose at the same time. Yes, exactly. No, that's a good. I I, I like that a lot. Um, what else? Uh, what What would you like to hear? I want to make sure we get to the ones that kind of stuck out well, to you. The closest thing to a happy song on this album that I found was uh, "A Dog's Life." It's not exactly a happy song, but it's the closest thing to a happy song, and it has uh, some. Yeah, really, this is catchy. Uh, I think if she could have ever had like even a minor hit, fiddle. it would have been this. But uh, I mean, I guess that violin in the that didn't happen, the but. Yeah, it's it's a catchy song and it's it's almost kind of positive and kind of cheerful almost uh, more so than any other of the songs on the album. Um, my timestamp was at one nineteen. It's just a great song, but the very, very end of the song, uh, I I have it timestamped at 2.35, there's a great little moment where, just as the song is ending, it goes, knick-knack, paddy-whack, give the dog a bone. It just adds that melody. Uh Uh-huh. We're very close to that. I didn't remember. Yeah, I, I didn't never catch that, that the first time. You didn't catch that? Yeah. I No, no. I'm no. just a fool. I, I didn't catch it the first time either, but I thought it was really cool. Um and and I think that everybody can relate to the idea of wanting to live a dog's life. I have a a cat named Max Rockatansky. He's named after Mad Max. <laughs> Mad Max, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Rockatansky is Mad Max's last name. Not a lot of people know that, but my cat is named after him, and he's locked in the bedroom now because otherwise he'd be stepping all over the computer while I oh. tried to record this podcast. But I've often thought how great it would be to live his life because basically all he has to do is snuggle me, sleep, and eat <laughs> when I feed him. And um, <laughs> when so, so when Nina talks about wanting to sit under the couch and chew a bone like a dog, I think everyone can kind of relate to the the desire to escape the burdens of human intellectual capacity and just be able to live a simple life of simple pleasures, you know? Mm, and, yeah. And in a way, this is 
this is the happy song on the album, even though it's about how she wishes she could live the life of a dog. And yeah. it's about a, a dream that is actually kind of a bad dream. It ends with the dog disappearing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's still the closest to a, a happy song. Yeah. One I, I think I really wanted to get to was, um, for this is, I think, a standout. And also, this illustrates, I, I love the string arrangements on this album because lots of times they can seem sort of overly, like, dramatic or like soap opera-ish to me but she goes for this very spare almost like string quartet kind of feel and stormy weather um i mean this is just a great melody to me and and, and I, I love the arrangement on this one and uh yeah it's just a great i mean it's a great song okay she comes running in we're all on fire she says so hysterically i'm in the shower she says save the water i can't be on best behavior i'm not afraid of stormy weather sunday afternoon we'll drive four hours yeah the strings are so minimalist but really great do these lyrics mean anything to you matt no i mean that's the thing i always try to get inside this story because i feel like it's it's a relationship song between maybe her and a, a friend or even a, a sister i guess i think it's a sister but i'm not sure like just the part about saving water for the shower right it kind of made me think it might even be a song about yeah. the relationship between a child and a parent. Like a dysfunctional parent who's emotionally unstable. Yeah. I, I mean, just the idea of fighting over the hot water in a shower is such a, like, people that live together thing. So I... Right. I thought a lot of these songs made me think, actually, of a child and a parent relationship. I don't know if that's just me projecting that or, or what. Yeah, she definitely never... It never seems like she's talking to somebody on her same level. Either somebody who's right. better off or worse off than she is. It's a really yeah. interesting perspective from which to write songs. She says, yeah, I'm not I, afraid I, I, of stormy weather, but then she says, I am afraid of stormy weather. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's made me think of like an emotionally unstable person you love, but they can turn on you and suddenly become really angry or just really upset. Yeah. I, I, actually, Todd, that what you said about being a child is, it, let me put this right. There's something about her songwriting that she, she seems... In the way that, you know, when you're a child, I think you, you're just very observant of things. Yes. That and adults do in, in a sort of... Soak it in like a sponge. In a quiet in an way. Innocent, and, and In a quiet, innocent way, yeah. And there's a way that she kind of sings sometimes. It reminds me of how a child just observes the adults around her in very detail, but they, they're not even sure. They're, they're not even aware of how much this child understands and, and, and picks up on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could be, like I said, I could be projecting, but... It, it did make me think um, of, of uh, you know, some of my own childhood experiences with my parents, like when they were going through their divorce and they would be emotionally 
volatile and uh, you, you wouldn't know it's like stormy weather you know like you don't know if the weather's going to turn on you but yeah no i could just be me no i i i i understand what you're saying and I, like i said i think that sort of like quiet observing kind of thing is is very core to her uh Todd, any, anything else or we should maybe listen to a, a couple more here i i have uh several more uh, the, the next song is called Smiley. I, I, it, it, um, spoke to me because it was one of the only, uh, songs on the album that uses rhyming schemes. And there was one, you know, that actually rhymes consistently throughout the song. And there was, um, one particular line. I don't know why it's so great, but I just thought it was a great line. It starts, I think at 56, zero 56. Because under your thumb, I'm suffering from being tiny. So, some about that line struck me out. Under your thumb, I am suffering from being tiny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then the other main song I wanted to get to is my my favorite song on the album which is the real standout to me is track 10. Nobody knew her. That song is yeah. devastating. And uh, I wanted to say a few things about it before you start. The first is um, Albini is kind of a interesting figure in my life because I remember when we worked at the onion in Madison, before we even moved to New York, my friend Dan Weber was the editor in chief and we were real big fans of big black and he found out that Albini was a fan of The Onion somehow. He'd seen a quote from him or somehow the word had got back to him that Albini was a reader. And that really blew his mind. And he drew this huge poster. He was a cartoonist. Uh, we were, a bunch of us at The Onion were cartoonists at our school paper before we started at The Onion. And he drew this big drawing of Steve Albini with the words, Albini is watching. And that was above his desk. And it just said, Albini is watching. <laughs> and, and so um, this is one of the few songs on the album that is a rock song that actually doesn't count as a, a folk song, but counts as a rock song and has really rocking guitar. And um, there's a couple of different moments that, that really stand out as Albini production. But... Um, uh, it, it, it's just such a great song, but the first 30 seconds of it are different than the rest. And so I just wanted to start with the first 30 seconds and then move on to the rest. Bradley comes home from school. He looks happier today than any other day. He won't go out with me. I don't care if I never see his face. Sometimes I want to get out of here. So right there, you start off, and then it starts the song proper. But it starts off talking about how Bradley's a boy she has a crush on, who won't go out with her. She doesn't ever want to see his face again. So 
And then you find out that he died in a car crash. You must have been wow. And you get into this chorus here. It becomes incredibly emotional, starting right here. But she doesn't say it's sad that you're dead. She says, "I." You know, she starts off singing, "I, I want, I want to get out of here." And then she says, "Bradley, I think you got away." Again, it's almost like an, she's envious of the dead, kind of like in Underground or in Roadkill, which yeah. we didn't talk about yet, which is a straight-up suicide song. I mean, that's just a song about committing suicide. Road, Roadkill. But um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about about this song in particular. Um, is I listened to it over and over, and there was this one part of it that I couldn't enter, and it's, it's that guitar part in the chorus where it goes da 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 and it kind of falls. I was like, where have I heard that before? It's similar to something. It's similar to something. And I figured out what it was. It's from the song 1983 off of the album Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. Uh, which is one of Jimi Hendrix's oh, greatest achievements wow. is that song, and it, and and there's a part in that in that song which gets very very emotional and it goes and it does that kind of guitar line and uh, that same thing shows up here and I don't think it's because she copied it, I think it's just that she just happened to write this exact same or not the exact same but a similar sounding. Uh, 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 guitar line that is very emotional and and really transports. Yeah, um, you mentioned Roadkill is sort of a you know possibly just you know a, almost a suicide song, and obviously the specter of death I think kind of hangs over this album. So let, we should hear that because I mean this is I think a, a very you know powerful song on the album as well. I'm feeling myself against the ground. I mean, she's literally laying down on the highway waiting for a car to run her over. Sometimes, shame, shame on myself. Can't take the heat. I start to dream of shady trees and watch the headlights coming down on me. Let yourself go. I hear them say it's beautiful. This is happy ever after. You know, I'm not afraid. She's just embracing the idea of a car running her over. Security running circles over me, but I don't think I'll And even the way that song kind of builds up like an oncoming car almost. Yeah. It's quite it's it's horrifying. it's a little bit freaky. Yeah, like that swell, that first one. Here it is again. Was yeah. I didn't want to interrupt the second one, but the first swell was literally about halfway through the song. Yeah. That's another great thing about this album is how she 
much time she takes. Like I said, that one second pause in mm-hmm. the other song, she she takes a long time to get to the meat of the song sometimes. But I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that no, in a compliment. no. Like she also doesn't make her songs overly long. You know, they're all about radio yeah. play long. You know, that one's two minutes long. But she does give a, a lot of breathing room. You used that term earlier, and I think it aptly describes both the instrumentation and the general pacing of the songs. It's really refreshing in a weird, dark way. The um, the uh, the darkness is is so deep. It runs so deep because there isn't like a a lot of these songs don't have a a redemption. You know, they they go to a dark place, they stay there, then they. And then they end. Um, and there isn't, you know, in that roadkill song, there's no moment where she decides not to commit suicide and she leaves the road. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, that, that's what I mean by this album is like two black eyes. It sounds mellow on the surface, but if you actually listen to it, nothing mellow about it. Yeah, she's kind of disquieting in certain ways. Um, uh, boy, yeah, <laughs> all these songs, the more I look at them, like these are dark. Uh, <laughs> I mean, All Your Life, I think, is a great one. That one that sort of explicitly mentions uh, drugs. Right. Um, There's I, I two think references to heroin. One is in Jimmy's Rose Tattoo, and one is in All Your Life, which is says heroin makes you thin. Um, there was one other thing, though. We, we've already moved past Nobody Knew Her, but I, I did have a timestamp from sure. 241 that I wanted to specifically point out as an example of Steve Albini's production because it's before the solo kicks in there's this uh great electrical noise before the guitar solo starts and then it goes into straight up rock which is the only really rock on the album and uh just the way that noise starts before the solo um i think it starts around 241 Yeah, that? that amp buzz. Yeah, that amp buzz. Yeah, and then this is just like, I mean, I love Neil Young and Crazy Horse, like live jams, and this yeah. is like right in that zone. I wish I knew who played the guitar solo. Is it her playing the No, the I looked up. Guitar solo? It's a guy by the name of Jerry Leonard. Um, I looked up all the players, and none of them are really that well known. I, this guy did one solo album in like the 90s, but I, I don't know if they're great musicians, but they don't seem to be like super well-known people. Maybe they were like friends of hers or something. The band is incredible. And the arrangements are incredible. Like I say, I, I don't know if it's Nina herself who did these arrangements or if Albini helped, but whoever did these arrangements really did this album a solid because... They're great songs to begin with, and I'm sure they would be great if it was just her playing on an acoustic guitar. But when you add the strings and the guitar and the musical saw, you know, the the drumming involves like, what's what's that soft sound you get when you drum with a brush? Yeah. There's so many many layers to the arrangement. Um, I, I kept looking to see arranged by, and there was no credit whoever it was yeah i would imagine it's it's probably her and i don't know you know some of the musicians themselves but um i think all her records have unique uh 
sort of place in her catalog. I mean, I would say that I would just encourage people like, I'm not even sure this is her best album. Mm. Um, you know, you, you, th- that, that shocks me. Uh, I, I feel like, I'll, like I said, I'll need to listen to this album many more times before I even absorb it. I can't even imagine moving on to a, another Nina album yeah. yet, you know, um, like the, I mean, too much to take in at once. Yeah. For me, she's one of those rare people where I think like I was talking to my friend who introduced me to her via text this week. And, uh, I was saying, I think she's like one of the only people where like, I think every album has been my favorite at a certain point, you know, depending. Right. Um, and, and she definitely has her certain style, but they're, they each have sort of a unique feel, um, to me. And, and some are more sparse and some and are she more has, orchestrated. What, five or six albums? I think about six. Yeah. I think three wow. are available on streaming and three are not. Um, wow. but you know, there's probably, they're probably on YouTube or, you know, the thing about CDs, man, they're, they're cheap online. You can find like lost albums oh, for you, like $4 on CD. You're talking to the <laughs> yeah, so, the, the vinyl of her, her vinyl is absolutely ridiculously expensive. So don't even like think about that. But, um, but yeah, she's, she's, she's an amazing artist. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm just happy, you know, you guys got something out of it because she's to me, um, you know, I, I definitely like a lot of singer songwriter stuff, but to me, it, it takes a lot to kind of stick out from that large crowd and, of, and feel of, like of, of acoustic singer songwriters. Yeah. You know, it and, does. And, and she, she runs deep. It's like still waters that run deep at first. It just sounds like, Oh, it's another woman singer songwriter who plays an acoustic guitar. But then you realize, no, this well goes 50 feet below that. Yeah. This and the is, other, I think this is very rich, rich music, even though it's the other reason I, I chose it because, I mean, I think it's rare to come out. This is her first album. Just I know, to be I, so I couldn't believe it. It said, assured and, it said 2004 because that's when it was re-released on Touch and Go, but it was actually in 2000 uh, that she did this herself. She only made like a 1,500 copies or something, and she sold them all. And that original re- release is completely, uh, you know, uh, out of print, and you can't get them. She, she, she made individual covers for each one handmade. And I'm just like, this is your first album. This sounds like the the work of a seasoned seasoned veteran of a lot of things. You know, somebody who's been through a lot and is running deep. Yeah. And it does not sound like someone's freshman effort. No, no, not at all. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, I feel like we covered this pretty well. I know your time's limited. We were hoping to get to a couple uh, listener questions. Would you be willing to stick around for a minute? I'm absolutely willing to stick around as long as you want. And if we ha- if we break up again, I'll awesome. I'll start up up again. I'll I'll stay online as long as you want me to. I'm do I'm not doing anything. Awesome. Really, we cool. appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So, listener Mike Lynch asked specifically for you uh, if you could tell us about your cartoon badgers and other animals from back when you were in school and what sort of led to its creation. And do you still draw it? Well, Mr. Lynch, I am shocked that you even know what Badgers and Other Animals is. I thought it had been long forgotten. It is a cartoon, a daily cartoon that I did in the Daily Cardinal, which was the campus newspaper at the UW-Madison from 1988, from fall of 1988 to spring of 1992. And it was very autobiographical, and it was about a young uh, stoner kid who drops out of school and, and, um, it was all kind of about my own life. Um, 
and uh, I, part of the part of the time I I was publishing it, I was in college, and part of it I wasn't, and um, because you know I, I, I had dropped out. Um, but it was at the Daily Cardinal that I met um, Dan Weber, Maria Schneider, Mike Lowe. They all had uh, daily uh, daily strips in uh, the Daily Cardinal. And uh, we're, we're doing illustrations in the Daily Cardinal, and we're all great cartoonists, and went on to work at The Onion. And they're all creative geniuses, in my opinion, and it was an honor to work with them at The Cardinal and at The Onion. And so I would just like to say to Mr. Lynch, thank you for even remembering what Badgers and Other Animals is. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure he's not know, the only one. I didn't know that yeah. anyone remembered. <laughs> Well, that's that's, awesome. that's our listeners for you. They are attentive and uh, they are diggers. They like to poke around. Uh, ben Van Houten says, do you ever worry that some piece of music you like has sort of a built-in expiration date? Like someday it's going to cease being relevant to you? An example that Ben gives is uh, Emergency and I by the D Dismemberment Plan. Uh, he says that sometimes it feels like I'll listen to it and not understand it someday because I am different from the first time I listened to it. Um, so do you think that any music you listen to today or maybe in the past, uh, comes into your life with like a rubber stamp to be later rend rendered obsolete, that it just lands at just the perfect, too perfect a time to be, to mean the same thing years down the road? Uh, I well, guess that, that's kind that's of an a, open that's question. That's a very but... insightful question. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm 52 years old, so I've gone through a couple cycles of that very thing. Like, like when I was in in high school, I was in a small town. I didn't know any hip people. Uh, I was in a small town in Wisconsin and I didn't really like top 40 radio of the eighties. So I graduated in 1986 and, um, I was into classic rock because I would listen to a lot of classic rock radio. So I had a bunch of Led Zeppelin albums and I thought all these Led Zeppelin albums were great. Well, four or five years later, I was embarrassed that I had ever liked Led Zeppelin. And I didn't want anyone to know that I had ever liked Led Zeppelin. And I got rid of my Led Zeppelin albums. And I had no interest in being a Led Zeppelin fan. And I stayed that way for about 20 years, just assuming that I had completely outgrown all of this classic rock. But then at some point, I realized enough time hmm. had gone by. And I sort of re-got into them. Um, some of the stuff I used to be into, I... You know, I used to really be into the doors, for example, and I still don't listen to the doors. I just outgrew them. Um, maybe someday I'll go back, just like I did with Led Zeppelin. But that hasn't happened with the doors. But interestingly enough, it did happen with Led Zeppelin. I have their like their first six albums again now. Um, they're and great. I think they're great. Even though I went 20, 25 years having absolutely no interest in them at all. And, um, wow. and you know like we were talking about the beach boys before I never had any interest in the beach boys at all until I turned 50. Hmm. Yeah, so I, turned kinda... 50 I turned 51 that, that, uh, during that phase. I was, wow. I was so 50 when I, kinda, started, I turned 51. So it kind of works both ways then. Like yeah, it works there's music ways, that's rubber stamped. You can grow out of something, but you can also yeah. grow back into it. That's wonderful and to think about. Uh, get back in touch with you, whatever part of yourself you used to love it. Man. I wonder what I'm going to like when I'm, 49 50 years old uh matt do you have any great examples um i mean it's kind of similar so um yeah so <laughs> i grew up in a small town as well um i graduated in 93 but um so when i was in like young elementary like stuff that i remember like high school kids that we would try to emulate was like every the only music was really heavy metal 
like in in stuff like Motley Crue or just, just I, like the bad hair metal of the well of, of or the or that or more like stuff like Judas Priest or Priest, you know Priest uh, is cool. like Iron Maiden Iron Maiden rules Priest was weirdly very big in my town for some reason um but yeah and then then and other stuff but knew he was gay isn't that a wonderful thought <laughs> yeah I know every time um, I listen to Priest now I just think of it as like gay rights music you know yeah. you know what I mean it's, it's so awesome yeah totally. But like the thing was is like I was so young, like young elementary, that I like I really believe like these guys were like worshipped the devil and did all these like satanic rituals and right, stuff. Right. And like and so now as an adult I see like Motley Crue is just basically a bunch of dumbasses. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they, you know, they're not in tune with the occult or like the guys from Iron Maiden just like sit around and like drink beer and watch like soccer, right? You know what I mean? Well yeah, when they're not flying their own plane. Yeah. So yeah. I wish I wish I could believe in that stuff in the way that I did when I was like nine years old or something like that, you know, or eight years old. <laughs> like, and it would really feel scary to me because now it's like when you go to a carnival, you know, you just see like all the cheesy like stuff in the haunted house, and it just seems like a bunch of like you know alcoholics like wearing <laughs> costumes and shit, you know. <laughs> so like, but you know, when you're accurate. young, like it's scary and it feels like really genuinely like ominous and stuff and i so i sometimes i wish i could i could experience music that way is like a you know where i really believed it you know yeah. i didn't i didn't see the strings on the puppet you know what i mean yeah or like eddie from iron maiden was like i see like a an older like say, Hesher guy of iron maiden the strings on the puppet that's the whole yeah. uh, that's the whole cover of number of the beast mm-hmm. but no, you know i'd see like i'd see an older like Hesher guy with like a Camaro that was like, you know, in high school when I was like in like third grade and I'd be like, Oh wow. Like look at his t-shirt. It's so <laughs> badass, you know? So I guess, yeah, that's kind of like, I, I wish I could, but you can't cause you know, you, you know, like who these guys are and like, it's just like, it's a, it's just a show. You know what I mean? Well, I mm-hmm. will say that if enough time goes by, you can sometimes get back in touch with, you know what? I want to feel that again. I want to listen to Iron Maiden again. Um, and, and go back in time. And oh, for sure. Take you back into that age that you were first into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it still, but like, you know, if I listen to like shout at the devil, like it wouldn't scare me. Right. <laughs> like when well. I was a kid, I was like, Oh my God, like this is real devil music. I like, this is like, if my mom finds out, you know, like, cause somebody's <laughs> older brother left us a cassette or something, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I'll have to test this someday. See if I can't spook you with some shout at the devil. Yeah, do it. <laughs> uh, okay. So, Todd, I don't know if you play any instruments, but uh, if you are an instrument player or musician, I will be interested to hear your answer to this question, too, which comes to us from listener Tom Blackburn, who asks, do you have any tips about how to, quote unquote, become one with your instrument? Uh, Tom has played uh, music for 15 years between guitar, banjo, harmonica, and even jaw harp, but he's never felt, quote unquote, creative when playing and says it has always felt like an exercise or a challenge that I'm focused on learning, but not expressing through it. Uh, kind of a formless uh, question, but yeah. Do you have any insight there? Well, I, I do not play any instruments. I, uh, my line is always that I, I don't play anything except my stereo, but mm. I, I like to think that I play it exceedingly well. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, in, in terms of a, a broader question about creativity mm-hmm. um, versus learning, you know, just learning a song and getting to where you can play it versus being creative, uh, I would advise him to go back to the punks who didn't even know how to play their guitars. And hmm. all they were doing was, you know, they, they would struggle to learn three chords or to learn one chord, or maybe even only knew a few notes. And they would, and they would play it as loud as possible, and they would scream, and they would express themselves on a very visceral level. 
And, um, you know, as a, as a comedy writer, I, I, when people ask me, you know, about creativity, I would just say, you know, uh, if you're going to make a joke, the joke has to be saying something and what it's saying has to be true. And I think the same is true of artistic expression in general. If, if you, you think of something you want to say, and it has to be not a lie, it has to be something that you truly feel, and then just express it in even the simplest ways, even if it's just one chord. You know, there, there's great punk songs that are one chord. And, 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 you know, not focusing so much on the technical side, but just on the raw emotion can, can mm-hmm. be a way out of that. I would yeah, guess. there's something about constructing it that way. Yeah. Uh, Matt, I know you play at least one instrument. What yeah, is your What is um, your habit? How did you get I from mean, from playing to writing to creating? I mean, but by by the time I was doing it, you know, seriously, it was definitely in the height of like you know, mid late '90s, like indie rock, you know. So my big thing is I just never learned covers. I just I was too lazy, kind of. So I would just always just plunk around and like you know. My big thing is I always just like record, you know, on my phone now. If I ever just like mm-hmm. come up with something, just record little bits and then kind of stitch those together. But I just, I never really bothered learning a lot of, I mean, unless I had to for some specific show or some reason, I never really learned cover songs. And I just, I'd never been that, I just didn't have the patience really to like do it right. So <laughs> yeah. I would I just relate, start moving. I relate to what you're saying, even though I don't play guitar. Um, uh, one of my very favorite bands, speaking of Albini, he recorded this band. One of my very favorite bands of all time is a band called Pussy Galore. And the people in that band were so creative with, um, you know, some of them really didn't even really know how to play when they started the band, you know, uh, and, uh, and yet they did such incredible uh, uh, expressions of creativity. And um, I, I like that idea. I like the idea of just uh, seeing what comes out. Yeah. As opposed to trying mm-hmm. to get it perfect. For sure. Uh, I, I also play to, an, to, to a lesser extent than Matt. I've never played professionally, but um, for me, it was always just like leaving the instrument in my hands all, at all times, even when I'm not like learning or playing a song, just having just the habit of like having it be part of your musculature for some reason helped me a lot in like just capturing thoughts and ideas that were coming through my head. Not that I'm, you know, any, any pro at it, but uh, I, I dabble. Um, but yeah, it's, just, it's like it's like when you draw. Um, yeah, I did a cartoon strip for four years. I, n- I don't really know how to draw. I just held the pencil and I would constantly draw faces and you know draw my little cartoon characters right. over and over, and eventually developed a voice that way just from holding the pencil or the pen. Yeah, there's and, some, there's and something I about like when you're. It becomes oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's it's kind of like you know, the more you see it as a tool for playing other people's songs, the more it's going to become a tool for playing other people's songs until you, you know, make it part of what you're, what you're doing every day. Um, but I hope that helps Tom. Uh, I feel like you've gotten some really, really good advice here and there. Uh, Jason Wojnar, not me, different Jason, uh, asks, what is your favorite music biopic? Um, generally loathes the genre Jason does, but he does love the Selena biopic and, uh, grew up watching the buddy Holly story. Um, I'll let you start with this one, Matt. Uh, what is your, I know that you, you like movies, you like music. Yeah. Where does the intersection um, uh, happen there? My, my favorite music movie of all time by 
quite a bit is it's kind of a biopic because it's sort of about one person, but it's also sort of about a lot of people in a scene and a sort of culture that sprung up around the label uh, Factory Records. Uh, it's a, it's a, a movie called 24-Hour Party People. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Steve Coogan, uh, who you may know from Alan Partridge, or he's been in a lot of movies. Yeah, he's uh, a you'll recognize genius. Him. Yeah, he is really. I mean, he's, you know, ultimately he's, I mean, well, Todd, you could jump in. I, I would say, imagine he's one of the more influential comedy he, television he really people. He really had the last, a mastery like, of the ironic voice, which is what we were focused on at The Onion. Yeah. I mean, the Alan Partridge shows are amazing. But uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's basically the story of Tony Wilson, who was a uh, television personality and sort of a low-grade television personality in Manchester. Um, he formed a record called, a label called Factory Records. They came out initially with uh, Joy Division was their big band. Goes through that era. There's also then Joy Division after the suicide of Ian Curtis becomes New Order, who becomes even bigger. Then later there's you know bands like uh, a certain ratio, and then uh, Happy Mondays become sort of the and and they formed a club called the Hacienda, which is really the you know beginning of kind of acid house and the techno scene and the rave scene in the in the late mid to late '80s. So it's a very like different biopic because he'll actually break the fourth wall and talk to the camera and some of the real people being portrayed young have like you know cameos as you know when the time the movie is being filmed so it's very kind of fractured and it's not like uh you know a classic kind of like walk the line isn't it yes yeah michael winterbottom is great at fracturing but to me it really captures the sort of like crazy spirit of like punk rock in a movie probably better than anything else. And I just, it's just also super entertaining. It's just, it's like, it's constantly shifting and it's just a, a riot kind of. So that, that's, I always kind of say that's to me, the movie that came closest to me is a movie of feeling like a punk rock movie, even though a lot of it's not even punk rock. Yeah. Uh, Todd, do you like music movies? I don't watch biopics in general that much, but I do have a favorite music biopic. Unsurprisingly, uh, it's it's uh, Love and Mercy, the, the Brian Wilson story. Oh. Um, I thought that broke away from a lot of the cliches of the music biopic. It's got an interesting structure. There are two different actors playing Brian Wilson at different ages in his life, and it transitions from when he's young to when he's old, and um, it really captures a lot of the, the sadness and, and trauma and abuse that um, that we were talking about. And the guy who plays Mike Love is really good at being an asshole. So I would mm-hmm. say yeah. um, I would say Love and Mercy was probably my favorite uh, uh, music biopic. Is Surprisingly that, good. Surprisingly, yeah, I with, was very skeptical, but it, with, it was very good. Is that one with Paul Dano in it? Yeah, Paul Dano plays the yeah. young Brian okay. Wilson, and, and he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he's brilliant in everything he does, but he's especially brilliant at that. Okay, so uh, Todd, our last question... John Jensen wants to know what music would you want played at your funeral? I don't know why I thought of this. My brain is a bag of cats, but John has this rather dark question for us. Uh, how, how do you feel about it? Um, I've thought a lot about it over the course of my life. You know, when you just think, oh, what music would I want played at my funeral or what passage would I want someone to read at my funeral or, or whatever. And um, I've gone through many different phases, but again, probably because I'm, you know, my most recent obsession was the Beach Boys. I think it would be the song Surf's Up. You know, like I was saying earlier Hmm. in this podcast, I think it is my personal favorite song of all the songs I've ever heard. 
which is weird coming from me because I'm uh, more of a rocker, but um, I think it would be the song Surf's Up. Uh, I think it's a very powerful song about the meaning of life. And uh, I would be happy to have that played at my funeral, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it it has legs for sure. Not a bad choice. Yeah. Um, Matt? Um, well, you'll know this one, Jason, because I know you like this album, but I've always Ooh. thought uh, there's a song by the band called Rocking Chair. Oh, man. Um, mm-hmm. Basically kind of two old sailors that, uh, you know, they want to get home. I don't think they're going to make it home ever. They've been out at sea too long, and they just want to go back to, you know, sit on the porch in Virginia. Um, but, you know, the I guess the inference is that they're probably not going to make it. But um, I just thought that was a, sort of a nice, uh, a beautiful song. Um, and, you know, Levon Helm singing it, you know, with a lot of mm-hmm. like, the kind of gravitas that he can bring to like a character like that. I was really like that song. Yeah, they are all, that must be the most soulful band of white people I, I know of. <laughs> They're just yeah, so, like, every word is just dripping with emotion and, and implication. Uh, okay, well, that was, in fact, our final question. Um, we do a little thing at the end, uh, which I'll put in over our final, uh, over our outro, uh, where we play a song that the community suggested. This one comes from Jason Wojnar, who asked about favorite music biopics. Uh, it is called Who is Calling You? by Calvin Grad. He suggested it. I can't play it here because it's not on Spotify, but I can paste it in later. Um, he suggested it because it has a Brian Wilson or Bill Wirtz vibe to him. I'll share it with you guys when we're done, but uh, it will be playing over our outro, which I will let Matt carry us through. All right. Well, Todd, thanks so much for your time. This is a really awesome discussion and I'm, I'm so happy I finally dug into Surf's Up. I don't know why I didn't years ago, but uh, it was a it was really fun, and I'm 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 also I'm glad you got something out of Nina Nastasha. She's a, a favorite of mine, and I was I, like, I, I really did, to... and I like I said, I never would have known about her if it wasn't for you. So thank you for Nina. Yeah, yeah, she's she's uh, she should be more popular, but she's relatively unknown uh, for whatever reason. We also like to thank you, our listeners, for supporting us. Uh, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/MinMax M-I-N-N-M-A-X to support uh, our kind of parent organization, and uh, you know. We appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll we'll see you next time. Thank you guys for having me. Someone in the field of blue, sun it shines down on you. Listen, who is calling you? Figure in the light, design must have left you. This